Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. hey Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk real estate investing with Matt Argusinger. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with Apple's App Store. Apple has struck a deal that will allow some app developers to collect payments outside of its App Store. Some are seeing this as a major concession on Apple's part related to antitrust concerns, while some in the app community are saying the move does not go far enough. Jason? Apple makes a lot of money through that App Store. How, how do you see this? They they do make a lot of money through that App Store. We'll talk about that. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm not surprised by this move. Um, I think I tend to fall into the 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 latter camp there, and then maybe it's not really from a developer's perspective. It probably doesn't feel like enough. I mean, to me, this really does feel like uh, optics more than anything else. And, and I don't actually blame Apple for that. It just is uh, kind of where this company is at this point, and, and they have to be very sensitive to the fact that they are under the microscope uh, in regard to antitrust, and, and, and for understandable reasons. Um, I, I think, okay, we look at the numbers. I mean, we're talking about a company here that does $350 billion in sales and growing. Now, there are Estimates out there that the App Store grossed anywhere from 60 to 70 billion dollars in revenue in 2020, uh, and it continues to grow at a fairly modest rate. I mean, those estimates were somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 billion dollars in 2019. But I mean, you can see that that's obviously that's gross revenue. That is not everything that goes down to Apple's bottom line. They do get a chunk of that, which is really nice. But it is it is not the crux of the business, so let's keep that in mind. And so I think it's very easy for them to make this offer. It it sort of puts them maybe in a little bit of a better light. But I also understand from from the developers' perspective, they feel like it's not enough. And I think it's it's ultimately it's about the terms here. I mean, this doesn't let developers tell users about the non-app store purchase options within the actual apps themselves. I mean it it gives these developers the opportunity to to communicate externally with customers using things like email addresses and phone numbers. Uh, but but it's not something where developers can go in there just explicitly alter consumer behavior. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind is is while Apple is doing this, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change consumer behavior. I mean, we value, I think, our time today more than anything, and uh, is a consumer, if it doesn't really impact the consumer, are they going to go in there and, and alter the way they pay for things? Some will, some may not. Um, it, it's probably a little bit more about how this sets the table for future developers. Uh, so all in all, certainly understand the move, not terribly surprised. Peloton's loss in the fourth quarter was much bigger than Wall Street was expecting. On top of that, the company warned it will be cutting the price of its original bike machine by about 20%, and shares of Peloton fell nearly 10% on Friday after the report. Emily, 2021 not going nearly as well for Peloton as 2020 did. Well, it turns out recalling treadmills, being investigated by both the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security doesn't exactly lend investors to feel really positively <laughs> when you post a loss that's more than double than what's expected in the quarter. But I feel like most of the movers thing is actually about fears about guidance. Uh, Peloton changed their guidance from 
uh, of nearly a billion dollars in revenue that was expected over the next quarter to 800 million, in part because of a 20% decrease in the price of their, their bike, which is a big move, unexpected by many investors, says something about the need for competition and how Peloton maybe doesn't have the pricing power that people expected. I do think that's why we're seeing the move today, not necessarily just because of that loss, which again, is largely due to that treadmill recall. I will say there are some good numbers here. Subscription revenue continues to outpace the connected fitness revenue, which is critical for the value proposition. So, connected fitness, which are their bike sales, up 35% year over year, and we're 70% of revenue. But just the subscriptions to the Peloton app were the other 30% of revenue, and that was up more than 130% year over year. So, keep watching those numbers, keep watching churn, keep watching engagement. Uh, but I wouldn't react too strongly due to the news, it was an unusual quarter for Peloton. Unlike Peloton, Bill.com ended its fiscal year with a bang. Fourth quarter sales came in higher than expected for the business software company. And shares of Bill.com rose more than 25% on Friday. Jason, was it that good? Well, that's I mean, it's a, a nice, heck of a move. It's a nice way to wrap up the week, Chris. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of great parts to this Bill.com story. I think the part that has the market so amped right now is the guidance. Uh, the, the company management is guiding for revenue to double for this upcoming fiscal year, uh, and that's thanks in part to 45% organic uh, Bill.com growth. And remember, Bill.com is a cloud-based software provider that basically digitizes and automates back-office financial operations for small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, but but yeah, I mean the numbers were very impressive. I mean we'll get to the valuation in a second, but uh, I mean core revenue growth of 73%, driven by 32% growth in subscription fees and 137% growth in transaction fees. They added 5,600 customers, now serve 121,200 customers. That is growth of 24% from a year ago. Uh, total payment volume, $41.7 billion, up 64%. Processed 8.2 million transactions. That was up 46% just from uh, a year ago. I mean, retention continues to improve. They, they are seeing the network effects at play here. I mean, the members who receive or make electronic payments through that platform, I mean, the end of the quarter, they have 3.2 million network members. That was up 28%. And then net dollar based revenue retention rate uh, continues to impress 124% this quarter versus 121% a year ago. Uh, and they've made a couple of big acquisitions along the way. The, the, the Divi acquisition for around $2.5 billion, they've closed that. Uh, they've made another little acquisition here that's in the process invoice to go, uh, which is an accounts receivable solution, a mobile, mobile solution. Uh, the stock is valued with this with this buying today at around 130 times gross profit. I can't tell you, <laughs> Chris, that this is a great time to get into this company. Okay, but I can congratulate shareholders who did get in earlier and had have had the patience to hang on here. This is a high quality business doing a lot of great things. Maybe now isn't the greatest time to push that buy button, but if you do own shares, I certainly will, I, I would hang on to them. You read my mind on the follow-up <laughs> question I had prepared. We'll move on to Best Buy. Second quarter revenue was up 20%. Same-store sales were three times higher than Wall Street was expecting. Best Buy also raised guidance for the full fiscal year and shares up nicely this week, Emily. I will say, I think there was a question mark for Best Buy heading into this quarter. Unlike some of the businesses that we'll talk about, I mean, Peloton being a good example, I think investors had low expectations or high expectations, respectively. 
Best Buy, on the other hand, you could make a case for a good and a bad quarter. We see still high demand, right? Consumer spending, at least in the United States, is still strong. Engagement with Best Buy has consistently remained strong among its core customers, and management has always been innovating. But on the flip side, we're seeing things like chip shortages, right? Supply constraints in many of Best Buy's competitors, and uh, lapsing a year where e-commerce was really strong. And despite e-commerce being down nearly 30% year over year, revenues still rose for Best Buy, and they proved we can continue to engage with the customers that we acquired in 2020 and increase their spending even into 2021. And that's exactly what we saw: demand boosted by by just demand for their core products and stimulus, home theater, appliances, phones. All of these things are in demand, and they didn't have any supply constraints, even with the chip shortage, which I was surprised by personally. I will say they also increased guidance. It's scary looking at the full year guidance, which now is is going aiming for same store sales of 9 to 11% feels really strong, but I like this management team. They're innovating. They have a total tech solution for a subscription for highly engaged customers. They're testing out new store prototypes, moving into new categories like outdoor living. Uh, really interesting and strange innovations going on here at Best Buy. I'm with you on the guidance, although I guess we should remember we got the holidays coming up in a few months, so maybe the guidance isn't that uh, crazy. I agree, but I will say that I think holiday demand can be great, but I'm worried about Best Buy running into some of those supply constraints. Again, they haven't experienced it right now, but their competitors have. I worry about them eventually needing to pull back guidance if, for some reason, they aren't able to keep up with demand. But again, that's a problem outside of their control. So even if they aren't able to keep up with demand, the demand is still there for Best Buy and their products. So for long-term investors, I wouldn't worry too much about the short-term guidance. After the break, we've got software, sports retail, and more. It pays to listen, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Radio at Fool.com is our email address. David Whitmire writes, Chris, you do a good job, good audio, good voice, good guess. But whoever does the music selection is doing a really great job. The stock talk is good, but it's the music that makes Motley Fool Money a great show. Thank you, David. I agree with you. The music is the cherry on top. And that is our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, who picks the bumper music every week. Let's get on to some more headlines from Wall Street. Last week, the stock on Jason Moser's radar was elastic. This week, the SaaS company posted strong profits in the first quarter. Those shares of Elastic were flat for the week. You tell me, Jason, it was your radar stock. What stood out to you? I said last quarter that this is one that needs to be on your shortlist in regard to enterprise data. And I think this quarter just reiterated that. If you remember, Elastic develops software and services that enables users to search through structured and unstructured data for all sorts of consumer and enterprise applications. So they're serving big businesses. This was the first quarter of the new fiscal year, and the numbers absolutely did not disappoint. Total revenue for the quarter, $193 million, up 50% from a year ago blew past their guidance, their internal guidance, for 33% growth. They also raised full-year guidance uh, to $811 million in the midpoint. That was just uh, from $785 million just a quarter ago. If you look at the, the, the other numbers, the key performance indicators, everything looks really encouraging. I mean, total subscription customer count over 16,000 now versus 15,000 from just a quarter ago and versus 
12,100 from a year ago. The total customer count with annual contract value greater than $100,000 is now at 780. That's up from 730 a quarter ago and 630 a year ago. And even more encouraging, that growth is accelerating, which just means they're bringing products and services to the market that their customers value and they're expanding those relationships. This is a really attractive business from a business model perspective. I mean, subscription revenue represents essentially 92 to 93 percent of total revenue. Uh, net expansion rate steady at 130 percent. Billings, I think, perhaps could have created a little trepidation there. 27 percent growth, not uh, anything to shy away from. But you you can see sometimes where Billings can be a little bit lumpy and create some sort of knee jerk reactions. But with a stock valued at 28 times gross profit today, I think it looks like a reasonable time to consider perhaps adding a few shares to your portfolio, Chris. What a week for Dick's Sporting Goods. A strong second quarter report came with raised guidance for the full fiscal year, and shares of Dick's Sporting Goods up more than 20% and hitting a new all-time high. Emily, this business is on fire. And I really should issue an apology statement for all the listeners who listened to me complain last year about how Dick's success in 2020 was going to be a one-off result of a rising tide lifting this boat in particular. Dick's, the thing I missed was the really strong retention that they had for virtually all of the customers that they acquired over the last year, and the continued millions of new customers that have come in through this quarter. They're actually not dissimilar from Best Buy and innovating in their store concept getting into more things that are higher margin, like footwear, what they call soccer shops. They're making it more of a destination. So, average tickets and transaction size all increased in the quarter. And in-store sales, as many expect, was up nearly 40% year-over-year, but that was still 36% higher than it was in 2019. Uh, The decline in e-commerce sales, more than made up by the in-store transactions. It's an interesting business. I still feel nervous about it when I think about the next year. I still think some of these numbers are really challenging. But the fear of making the same mistake twice, I will just say, Dix is executing on a level that I did not expect. Software giant Autodesk got a little less gianter this week. Second quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected, but Autodesk guidance for the third quarter sent shares falling as much as 10% on Thursday. Jason, this is one of the stocks in your portfolio. What did you think of the guidance? It is, yeah. I mean, I think this is another example where Billings guidance might create the illusion of a problem that isn't really there. Uh, much like we were talking about with Elastic. I mean, management noted in the call that. Uh, some sort of this restructuring of the billings guidance, right? The, the way they're going from uh, multi-year contract terms to annual uh, billing terms, that that changes a little bit of that billings growth, which could create some uncertainty in the near term. But I don't think that's a mark against the business at all. I think the numbers bear that out. Uh, they grew the top line 16 percent non non-gap earnings per share of of one dollar twenty one cents versus ninety eight cents a year ago. Uh, again, a lovely subscription business here. Subscription revenue ninety six percent of total revenue for the quarter and net revenue retention remains in that targeted 100 to 110% range. I think that one thing to consider is is the word infrastructure, right? We've heard a lot about infrastructure in this this ongoing debate in DC about how much is going to be spent. 
all of management's guidance here for this coming year. There's nothing that really includes the potential of infrastructure. So, it's just worth keeping in mind, there is a potential tailwind forming there that's not being realized in the numbers today. Uh, but, but all in all, this is a very strong business. We're going to learn a lot more uh, about this coming year on September 1st when they have their analyst day. Uh, this is actually profitable, and Chris, so shares valued around 60 time, uh, 63 times full year earnings estimates. Uh, that's pretty much in line with how it's been how it's been valued here recently. So I, I think uh, all things all things considered, things look pretty good for Autodesk. Imagine that a company that's actually profitable. It's unheard of. William Sonoma's second quarter profits came in higher than expected. They raised their quarterly dividend by a healthy amount, and shares of William Sonoma up more than 12 percent this week. Emily, is another specialty retailer showing everyone this is what winning looks like. And at the risk of making another Dick Sporting Goods mistake, I, I'm convinced this is a one-off experience for Williams-Sonoma. I, I can't fathom the demand that is there for the home furnishing markets, in particular such a fragmented market of which Williams-Sonoma is fighting to become a more digitally native brand. That being said, they did have a great quarter. They had earnings of over $3.20 a share versus the $2.60 expected. And earnings were up 30% year-over-year. So, raise the guidance, raise their dividend, all of these things pointing in an interesting direction. But William Sonoma is convinced the housing market is going to stay really strong, which is going to support their business. And if their underlying thesis is, oh, the housing market is going to be really successful, so we'll be really successful, I don't like that because it takes the power away from the brand. It takes the power away from the strategy of management and puts all the power in the demands of the underlying market itself, of which William Sonoma has no control. So if housing demand and housing market expansion is weaker than expected, they could be in a situation where they have to pull back the guidance that they just increased. But isn't that somewhat similar to like a restoration hardware or even to some extent a business like Wayfair? Like, look, if people are spending more on their homes, they're investing more in their living rooms, their bedrooms, their kitchens, it doesn't seem that crazy. That's fair, and I'll give credit where credit is due. But Home Depot, if you look at their most recent quarter, they actually had a drop off in shoppers year over year, which says something about the demand for housing. And not that it's a one to one comparison, but it is just to say that raising guidance in such an unpredictable time like this is a risky move. And I would prefer Williams Sonoma have a more concrete strategy for how they're going to turn their very retail based stores into a digitally native strategy with way more direct to consumer sales. And while they have been doing that, it's still, again, a very fragmented market, and they're up against a lot of digitally native competitors. So, I can I can see it being challenging. But then again, maybe this is the millennial in me talking who just doesn't have the same heart for the Williams-Sonoma brand that many other homeowners do. All right, we'll see you both later in the show. Up next, Matt Argus-Singer with the latest on commercial real estate, REIT investing, and more. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Time to check in on the real estate market with Matt Argusinger. He is the lead investor for Million Acres, the Motley Fool's real estate investing service. He joins me now from his home. Matty, good to see you. Hey, good to see you as always, Chris. So, there are a bunch of things I want to get to, but we should probably start with REITs because. Real estate investment trusts have been on fire this year. What is driving that? I think there are a few things. First thing is being 2020 was a bad year for REITs. And so they're kind of 
bouncing back from from what was a historically challenging year across the board, whether it was you know retail, office, um, hotels, it just just got crushed because of COVID. And so you had a lot of REITs back in 2020 who you know they cut their dividend, they stopped, uh, you know they were experiencing rent collection issues, you know reporting lower results, and so you had a you had a kind of a bad year there. 2021. Surprising to me, of course, it's it, they, they bounced back, but bounced back even stronger than um, even I was thinking coming into 2021. Uh, so a lot of them have restored their dividend. Traffic has come back, uh, even on the retail front. We've seen you know big increases in consumer spending this year, and so outside of really office and and maybe hospitality hotels, which are still kind of struggling to get back on their feet, it's been a fantastic year for. For real estate, if you look at the industrial REITs, data center REITs, they were already fairly strong in 2020 anyway, and they've only gotten stronger in 2021. And so, I was looking at the uh, Vanguard Real Estate Index, which is kind of a good overall gauge of the the REIT market, and it's up 25% this year. So it's outperforming the stock market. It's outperforming most other indexes. And so, you know, bouncing off of 2020 year that was pretty bad, but also REITs. You know, coming into 2021 had underperformed four out of the last five years, and that just Really hasn't happened in history, and so I feel like they are really overdue for a good year. And and the with the vaccine distribution and the economy bouncing back so sharply, they're really benefiting more than other sectors. For people who don't own any REITs and they're starting to look at that, it, should they be looking at specific sector-oriented REITs like data centers or something like that? Uh, you know, I think it's always good to have a good mix. You know, I I, I would say if you're looking to get some real estate exposure to your portfolio. Uh, I'd say buy at least eight to ten in that range of REITs, and I think you want a nice uh, diversification, like you mentioned. I think you want maybe an industrial REIT, uh, like a Stag Industrial or a Prologis. You'd want a um, you know a data center REIT, like you said, Digital Realty Trust is the biggest one out there. Um, you'll, then you'll want you know maybe an office REIT, uh, a retail REIT. And the beautiful thing is, you can really find there's hundreds of REITs out there to choose from, and uh, that's kind of what we do in real estate winners. Um, had to throw the plug in there, Chris. Absolutely. And, and so, um, you know, having a nice diversified group of basket of REITs for the real estate side of your stock portfolio, I think, is a is a great place to start. Where are we now in your eyes when it comes to office space, commercial real estate? I mean, we're Basically, 18 months into the pandemic, it was looking pretty promising earlier in the summer. Um, some very large companies have pushed back from this fall to early 2022 in terms of their return to office. Um, what are you seeing um, when you look out there at just sort of like office space writ large? Yeah, it is really unfortunate. You you saw some traffic coming back to office um, in the earlier part of the summer, and I think with the Delta variant. Now, kind of out there, and there's a lot more uncertainty now about what that's going to lead to. Is that going to lead to? It is leading to another surge in a lot of states. But what's that mean for the fall? And so, I think a lot of uh, offices, corporations are getting a little more cautious. And you can see that CoStar came out with some data the other day showing that the um, office traffic was bouncing back, and now it's kind of fallen off in, in most major markets. And as you mentioned, reopenings have been pushed back until uh, either later this fall or even into 2022. <sighs> I'm still very concerned about office, short term and long term. Short term, we we talked, we just talked about, but in the long term, there's still so much uncertainty about what the office demand is going to be for most companies. You know, do we move to? Does every company move to somewhat of a hybrid approach where 
They only demand that you know workers are there two to three days a week or even less. Um, do a lot of companies go fully remote for at least certain parts of the business because they can and they find that their employees are just as productive? I, there's so many questions out there and so many smart opinions. And uh, I, I, right now, I'm just sort of with Office. You got to sort of be on the sideline. I think every company's going to figure it out on their own. But I can. Of any part of the real estate market that I think has changed forever by the pandemic, um, I think office is it. I just think it's created a, a paradigm change in not only what we think about office, but just in general how we think about work and employee, you know, space and relationships with other workers. It's 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 really changing, and I don't think we'll know until probably late 2022, if not in 2023, you know, how it all how it all shakes out. So one of the things you and I talked about back in May when you were on the show, we were talking about residential housing because maybe the dominant story in the first half of the year when it came to real estate was house prices were just uh, through the roof, no pun intended. <laughs> and you reminded me and our listeners that part of what was at play was really the long-term effect of the past decade coming out of the Great Recession in 2008-2009. Even if you look at going into those years, the residential housing market was probably overbuilt. We were just flat-out building too many houses, new houses as a country. They may have overcorrected. And so, from 2010 through 2020, we basically had a decade of a much lower number in terms of new houses. Is that a possibility at play when it comes to office real estate that we're just going to see over the next decade because there's so much uncertainty right now? A lot of people who are in that business might be saying, you know what, Uh, there's no real great incentive to throw up a bunch of new office buildings. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think if you look at development, so new develop, new construction of office. Virtually non-existent uh, in most in most cities, and in fact, it's going the opposite way. You're seeing office buildings be converted into uh, multifamily apartment buildings or into other uses, and and so I think the I think the overall pie is too big for office, and I think that's it's going to shrink just like uh, you know we might have seen with the residential market back in the last decade. Could it overcorrect? I, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I I, I I given how sharp the Change in sort of employee work relationships going to be. We we still might end up with having too much office several years from now, even after we've converted a bunch back or stopped using a lot of it. Uh, and so, um, so much uncertainty. And I you know I wouldn't say that it's it's a matter of we could overcorrect in that market because I would say, given what I what I expect, you know how this is all shaking out, I think we probably end up with in a situation where there's still too much office supply, uh, even a year or two from now. Let me go to retail for a second, because one of the things we've seen over the past year and a half is large general retailers like Walmart and Target um, really thrive um, by investing in curbside pickup, um, e-commerce, delivery, digital sales, all that sort of thing, but at the same time, maintaining that store presence. Um, you know, Target is. There are some Target locations that are almost now like mini malls within themselves because they've got a Starbucks, they've got uh, an Ulta Beauty store in there, they've got a CVS pharmacy, they've got a Disney store. Um, when you think about malls themselves, like are malls going to have any kind of resurgence, um, or is that still not a great way to invest? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't think the traditional mall is going to have uh, a resurgence. I think it'll be used differently. So the space itself will be reconfigured to, you know, be a place where um, you know data centers can be, warehouses can be. We've seen those kind of conversions, but it could also become a place where, you know. Um, there's entertainment venues, uh, or the space is used to attract people for experiential activities, and uh, it, it, you know, uh, uh, there's a, there's going to be a use case for that real estate, and you're seeing it kind of play out in a lot of spaces. Interestingly enough, though, um, CoStar had a report. I think the the company was Placer Labs did some research about um, customer traffic trends, and actually in July, so just this past July, the traffic, the foot traffic to malls. Was actually back to pre-pandemic levels, back to 2019 levels. Um, now, most of that actually was on the on the outdoor mall side. So it was a measure of outdoor malls and indoor shopping malls. So indoor shopping malls are still lower, but but the the customer traffic is is essentially back. We don't know how this new Delta variant is going to play out, right? But the retail traffic is is back. But I still think to the to the larger point, a lot of this space is going to be reconfigured. It's going to be turned into like mixed use entertainment or other types of, of uh, service-oriented real, retail real estate, because we do have too much. There's, you know, I'm, I don't know about office, I don't know about other things, but I know for a fact that the United States has way too much retail real estate. We've got, you know, the comparisons are out there. We've, we have something like 10 times the per capita real, retail real estate as like a, your average European country. It's, it's far too much. And, so, and given just the changes in the way people shop um, for most things, uh, you know, it, it, we have to. It has to shrink, but that that doesn't mean places like Target and, and really good shopping centers and places like that won't thrive because there is, uh, you know, there's a reason to go to those places and there's a reason customers are obviously finding reasons to go because the traffic has certainly bounced back. Well, one of the ways at least some amount of that uh, space is going to get used this fall is something we talked about on last week's show, and that is that Amazon in what is truly a through the looking glass type of story amazon <laughs> is going to be opening department stores in reportedly california and ohio what did you think when you saw this story yeah what is old is new again it's with amazon it's it's interesting my first thought was not thinking so much about how amazon plans to use the space and, and whether you know what kind of things they're going to do with their the business it's just really about the deals they're probably getting on the real estate because a lot of these really, you know, big department stores, anchor stores, and you know, malls, um, the the price per square foot, the leasing value of, the, of that property has declined so much. So no matter what Amazon decides to do, I know they're getting a great deal on the real estate. So they can experiment all they want. You know, I'm sure they'll probably try a bunch of different concepts. Um, you know, allowing people to come in and sort of. You know, experiment window shop with apparel companies or you know other things that other of their third party seller networks. But at any rate, they can they can they can fail at this, and, and I wouldn't be surprised, and it wouldn't ding Amazon whatsoever because I'm sure they're getting a fantastic deal on the real estate. And so it's just another a way of I think Amazon expanding its footprint in creative ways, and and in this respect, they could do it in a very large way, but probably in a very affordable way, just because of how that real estate has, has fallen in the last decade or so. But um, man, I just you just cannot count out Amazon, you know, just when they think they're disrupting one area of the market and changing it forever, well they're actually they're going back to the drawing board and saying, you know, this actually could make sense <laughs> in, some, in some interesting way for our business. It's 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 amazing. 
Do you think we're going to know pretty quickly whether or not it works? Because given the amount of available space, it seems like at least one potential outcome is that they test these department stores, and you know, given what we know about Amazon and their love of data, the different ways they can use the space, including for logistical purposes, it's entirely possible that in early 2022 we see this expanding beyond California and Ohio. Oh, I think I think so. I mean, that's that's the beauty of Amazon is that they have the balance sheet, and and by the way, the the investor market support that they've always had to try things and fail at things, um, and they'll optimize that real estate to the to in a way that will be successful. Once they do, then they'll start rolling it out uh, in, in in more places. Um, we've seen that with other concepts they had, like the Amazon Go or Amazon Fresh, and you know. Trying things out, finding out what you know what's what's triggering customers to come to a certain place and, and make the orders that they do, and once they do, they can roll that out pretty quickly, um, given their amazing footprint and reach. So, uh, you know, another way that Amazon's eating the world. Now they're eating the world. You can actually go and see them eat the world instead of see it online. So there you go, Chris. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the hospitality industry earlier, and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on Airbnb because you're someone who um, looks at Airbnb not just as an investor, but as someone who has used it um, uh, as renting out property. Um, how bright is the future for Airbnb? Yes, my well, my yeah, my wife and I have been hosts on Airbnb for uh, gosh more than ten years now. I think the I think the the future is bright. Um, whether that means buying the stock today is going to work out, I don't know. But the company itself has such a a network effect. And I'll give you just one example. You know, it used to when we when my wife and I were hosting and renting out our apart, apartments in Washington D.C. Generally, with Airbnb, you know, you're looking at stays of two to three days. Someone's coming in for the weekend. But now we're using Airbnb actually to find long-term renters because uh, Airbnb is such a vast uh, network of not only apartments but also renters and prospective tenants. And a lot of those tenants nowadays, especially in sort of your post-COVID world, are looking for longer-term stays. They're going to a city for not just a weekend, but maybe three months or six months. And so we've we've actually made had several bookings of longer than a month or two. At our apartments via Airbnb, and I just two or years, two or three years ago, I would have never thought of Airbnb as a place to find long-term renters. And so now, when you look at Airbnb, they've got the short-term from the spectrum of short-term rental and long-term renters. They also have their experience business, which I think is taking off. And and gosh, once we're sort of traveling again, you know, and, and I, not just you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking traveling abroad and people come and travel to the United States. Once that fully reopens, and hopefully by the end of this year or early next year, that happens. Um, I just see the, the the traffic on the platform is going to explode. Um, whether or not the stock would you know is going to follow suit and reward investors from today's price, I don't know. But I think the business has tremendously bright prospects. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. We are just days away from the start of the NFL season. Las Vegas sportsbooks have put out their projected win totals for every team, and they have our New England Patriots at nine and a half wins. Are you taking the over, the under? How, how are you feeling? I am, I am, you know, Chris, I am taking the over on that. I mean, Mac, you know, Mac Jones or Cam Newton, whoever's the quarterback, I don't know. But, uh, of course, I'm always optimistic about, the, about my New England Patriots, as I know you are. So, take the over. If you want to read more from Matt Argusinger and his team, go to millionacres.com. It's the place to be if you're interested in real estate investing. Maddie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Chris. 
Up next, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Where it began, I can't begin to knowing, but then I know it's growing strong. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Emily Flippin, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Traeger. It's a relatively recent IPO. Their ticker symbol is Cook, C-O-O-K, and they are a popular seller of wood pellet grills. Over 60% of U.S. households own a grill, with more than 2 million replaced every single year. Wood pellets are replaced at a higher rate. Those two things make Traeger a potentially interesting addition to your portfolio. I will say, I'm keeping my eye on this one, but not necessarily buying. It's a very competitive market. Dan, question about Traeger? Yeah, well, first thing, great ticker. Cook is fantastic for Traeger. Love that. Uh, here's the thing, Emily. When I bought a wood pellet smoker, I didn't buy a Traeger. I bought a less renowned brand and saved a couple of hundred bucks, and I'm very happy with it. And I think a lot of people are starting to do that, too. I, I will give you credit where there are cheaper options, but they think they're a better option. They have a Wi-Fi service, Wi-Fi, that actually hooks up to your grill, tells you when your meat's done. So it is a premium product, and the brand and the price reflect that. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Man, you had me a Wi-Fi. That's just great. Uh, Dan, I'm looking at the Glimpse Group this week. Uh, ticker is VRAR. Uh, Glimpse is a platform company made up of a diversified group of wholly owned and operated VR and AR. That's virtual reality and augmented reality, Dan. Uh, companies. And so, similar to a fund, this is less about one company and more about a collection of many small companies, uh, which I, I think is an interesting way to look at this immersive tech space. A couple of examples they have Immersive Health Group, uh, which is working on VR AR solutions for medical professional training. And then there's also Early Adopter, which is developing VR and AR solutions for K through 12 education. This is a small company, Dan. Market cap below 100 million. This is not an idea we can consider today, but it is absolutely one I'm going to learn more about and keep on my radar. Dan, question about the Glimpse Group? Not really a question, more of a comment. I just love the idea of an aggregate company for virtual reality and uh, augmented reality stuff. And, and Jason, this seems to be exactly the type of thing you've been looking into lately. It is. You know, I run our augmented reality beyond service here, and, and that's what fascinated me with this business, is its collective approach. Many businesses spreading that risk around, much like we espouse with a well-diversified portfolio, right, Dan? What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? You know what? I'm going to go Glimpse Group. I'm intrigued by the concept. All right, all right, all right. We're out of time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Okay.